God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it's able to pierce between marrow into our hearts and our minds and it's able to speak to our individual and collective situations. So right now, God, as we take apart a story that can sometimes come across as obscure or not, we're unsure how this relates to our moment right now, I pray that you would illuminate this story to us, illuminate what we see Jesus doing and who Jesus is claiming to be through his words and his deeds this morning. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory, your majesty, your goodness, your mercy, who you are, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, Dan has a lovely reading voice, and he did a great job of reading that whole passage. But just to assure you, we're only going to be dealing with Mark 1, 21 to 28 this morning. Uh, Dan, uh, last week, kicked us off by starting this whole series in the book of Mark. So we're in the book of Mark, and if you're new and visiting, uh, you came on a great Sunday because we're just getting into this. But I encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, sermon that Pastor Dan gave. It just gives you the overview of the book, but it also links it, most importantly, to our vision and mission here at Port Kells Church and what we are trying to do together as we grow into community. And uh, one thing that I love, and I guess um, hates too strong of a word, so I'll use dislike about going through a book like this, is you have no choice but to engage in the stories, with the stories, as they come. So, this is not the story that I would have picked on a Sunday, especially if you're visiting, to deal with, because as you probably can put two and two together, we're dealing with the spiritual realm this morning. We're dealing with uh, impure spirits or demonic activity or whatever that means and uh, how Jesus confronts that. And as we delve into this story, I want to kind of preface it as your pastor. Um, I've said this before here. I know a lot of us, come from different Christian experiences, different denominations with different understandings and backgrounds. And maybe, as I said, you're here just with us this morning exploring Christianity. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I hope that you feel like you belong here before you believe any of this. But what I wanted to say this morning is that as we talk about this stuff, for some of you, this might jolt you. This might come, make you uncomfortable as you sit here and listen to the things that we're talking about. It might bring about some hard questions that you might need to go home and answer for yourselves when it comes to what we're dealing with this morning. And I say this because this aspect of Christianity, the spiritual realm, if you will, that we're going to be talking about, the kingdom of darkness, what that means, how we interact with it, is actually something that I only came across or only started to understand about six years ago, in 2018. So I was a pastor here, a pastoring at a local church here in Surrey, and uh, one of my friends who was a pastor in uh, California said to me, like, hey, you should probably start researching and starting to understand for yourself this aspect of Christianity when it comes to the spiritual realm or spiritual warfare, as some of you might know it. And so one Sunday afternoon after church, I was at my parents' house, sitting on the couch, reading this book that this pastor recommended I read. And as I was reading this book on uh, spiritual warfare and all that kind of stuff, I get this text from my good friend Seth, who is on sound this morning, and this is what he wrote. Hey dude, I was wondering if you've ever dealt with spiritual warfare slash evil spirits or demons slash how to address and deal with them slash and casting them out, question mark. Specifically regarding non-Christians. Long story short, there's a guy from his wife's work and he has been exploring Christianity and coming to church, but he's experiencing some very off-disturbing things and hearing voices. I wrote back to him, bro, I'm just reading about this right now. Awestruck emoji or whatever that face is. Uh, I've dealt with this before. I prayed for people. I could pray for him if you would like, but also let me give you some resources. So coincidence, I think not. I got on the phone with Seth, I don't know, the day after. I screenshotted this book, he read it, and um, to shorten the story, him and his wife prayed for this person, um, and he was 
being demonically oppressed. I'll talk about what that means in a second. But the beauty of the story, you can ask him for the details, is months later, uh, Seth discipled this guy, and uh, he sent me a picture of him baptizing this guy at this church, uh, which is an amazing end to this story. But this is what I was thinking the whole time this whole episode was happening. This does not happen in Surrey, period, full stop. Like, this doesn't happen in this part of the world. Like, I've heard stories of my friends going on mission trips to Africa or South America and dealing with, uh, you know, demonic things and activity and stuff like that. But this doesn't happen here. I was skeptical. Maybe you are this morning, too, as we come across this story. And this is what I want us to get, okay? The thing is, the conflict isn't between supernatural and science. You know, maybe you're sitting here and you're a rational person. It, interesting enough, there are studies that have been done in neurophysiology that back the claims, at least, that the experience of demonic activity uh, is there when you uh, actually monitor the human psyche and the brain. Not only that, a leading anthropologist uh, named Erica Bourgeois points out Belief in spirit possession is widespread in varied cultures around the world. She sampled about 488 diverse ethnographic, uh, graphically represented societies and discovered this. 360 of those societies, out of the 488, believe in this stuff. It's a widespread belief. So you go to uh, places like Africa, as I said, South America, the Pacific Islands, you name it. You will hear stories and you will hear examples of this. But here's the thing. Come to the West. Come to Canada, right? And this is what we tend to do. We tend to naturally chalk these things up to mental illness or hysteria, or something else that is going on in the human body, more being explained in a medical way versus a supernatural way. And I get that, you know? But this is what we need to do as followers of Jesus. This is the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, okay? Do I have a Western worldview or a biblical worldview? Do I have a Western worldview or a biblical worldview? worldview. See, the thing is, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we're learning to become like him as we follow him, as we apprentice him, as that's how we say it here at Port Kells Church. And as we apprentice him, what we are learning to do is we're learning to create for ourselves a biblical, a biblical worldview, a lens, according to scripture, how we filter and explain the world around us and what takes place in it. But unknowingly, sometimes in certain areas of our lives, we still hold on to or have a Western worldview, a way of looking and interpreting things, a worldview that moves to rationalism or logic more than the unknown and the mysteries of the spiritual realm. But here's the beauty of it. As we dig into these stories, we're going to find explanations or even understandings of how we're supposed to look at these things and deal with these things and understand these things that happen around us. And a lot of what I am going to share with you uh, comes from a pastor, a friend, a teacher of mine. His name is Dr. John Thompson. And he teaches this spiritual warfare class in this uh, uh, seminary in Toronto called Tyndale. But I'm not going to be able to co uh, cover everything this morning. But this is my main goal, okay? This is my main goal. What I want us to do, I want us to broach the subject. I want us to scratch the surface of an understanding of what is spiritual warfare. What do I mean when I say that? What are we doing? And this is my heart. I, my heart for you is as we do this, you will gain a balanced biblical worldview when it comes to dealing with this stuff. Because here's the fact. If you're a Christian or not in the room, we all are open to the possibility and the reality of dealing with these forces of darkness. Some of you have even told me stories of how you have dealt with this stuff in your own lives as you walked out on mission following Jesus in this city. And as I shared this morning, I'll give you some examples from my own life. But Mark 1, 21 to 28, okay? To give you some context and catch you up, as Dan said last week, we left Jesus, 
calling his disciples, his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They started following Jesus, and now this is the next day, and the crew shows up on a Sabbath day to a synagogue, the equivalent of a worship space or a church. And what happens? Uh, Jesus gets up and starts preaching. Mark, the author of this book, wants us to notice one thing, and it's this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And as the kingdom of God has come near, in a practical way, this is what happens. He says this. First, notice this about Jesus in Mark 1.22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them, speaking of Jesus, as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. I've been able to um, lead many missions trips to Haiti uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Um, and what thing, one thing I loved about doing missions work in Haiti was going into these schools and teaching the kids about Jesus. And a lot of times you go into these schools and uh, the rooms were really packed and there was kids everywhere and they were all trying to vie for your attention, showing you their drawings or telling you what they're learning in school, right? And it can get really chaotic at times and loud. But the one thing I noticed that was a different, I, I guess you could say, from the schools here, is as soon as the teacher walked into the room, everything changed. The atmosphere changed. Just her very presence all of a sudden brought about order to this space. The kids would sit down. They wouldn't talk. They would give her, her attention, all their attention, even before she even said a word. There was something about her that you knew she carried authority in her role, her position. Mark is trying to get us and emphasize that we see that in Jesus. The point he's trying to make is his authority, the authority that he taught with. We see throughout the book that Mark oftentimes doesn't tell us what the content of his teaching is, but he gets to the point of the message or what he's trying to say and what is true about Jesus' teaching is that it carried this authority, it carried this power. What I love about the Gospel of Mark is if the Gospel of Mark was a movie genre, it would be an action-adventure because it's always moving, it's fast-paced. And the scene starts off very fast, right? It's Jesus' authority speaking with conviction and power. His presence, right, is changing the atmosphere that he's in, in the synagogue. And this is what's amazing the people. Like, they're comparing his teaching to the teachers of the law of the day, or the scribes, as one translation says. So here's the question. What made Jesus' teaching different than the scribes or the other teachers in this place, in the synagogue, right? What would the, the teachers or the scribes say that was different? Because you need to understand in this co culture, in this context, they both were teaching scripture. They both were teaching or expounding on the Torah, the Jewish law. So what makes them different? Well, I heard a pastor say it like this. Scribes, when they speak, they say, it, they say this, it is written. Or even you might have heard, like, what, what, do you, what do prophets in the Old Testament, like I, Elijah or Isaiah say, right? When they speak, when they uh, give us revelation of God, they oftentimes say, thus saith the Lord in this Old English translation, right? They're delivering a message, but it's not their own words. It is written, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus comes along, and he does something, and he says something totally different. He says, I say unto you. Jesus claimed original authority, not derived authority. See, I get up here and I open the Bible and I say, this is what the Bible says and I hope I have some authority as I'm talking to you, but it's derived authority. Jesus had original authority. Unlike the prophets, unlike the scribes, Jesus said, I say unto you. In the old King James Bible, just the tra translation, it kind of gets this point across better than some modern translations. And, and if you read it, uh, or the statements Jesus makes often when he's teaching is, verily, verily, I say unto you. And in our common language, uh, in English nowadays, we don't understand the astounding point that he's trying to make. But he literally is saying, in the original language, the Greek, he's saying, amen, amen, when he spoke. And then he would start speaking. So what is he doing? When the synagogue, you speak in the synagogue, this is what takes place, okay? They assemble together, 
And when someone speaks, the elders were always seated up in the front row, okay? Unlike our church. And in the front row, the elders' job was to make sure whatever the speaker was saying was true to Scripture. The elders needed to approve what was saying. So after the person would speak, one of the elders would say, Amen. Okay? And maybe some of you have experienced it in a lot of churches uh, in our day and time, right? Where you go into certain cultures, and as the preacher is speaking, right, the, the person in the crowd is saying, Amen, right? Meaning, hey, that resonates with me. Saying, yeah, I agree with you, okay? But this is what Jesus does. He gets up. He says, I say unto you, amen, amen, meaning what I'm about to tell you, you can't judge. You can't judge what I am saying. I'm just saying it to you. That's the type of authority that I have. Jesus says, you can't say that because if I am who I said I am, meaning you can't judge what I'm saying, if I am the son of God, then I have authority over your mind. I have to have intellectual authority. That's what Mark's trying to get across to us. Even if your culture says one thing, even if your mind says one thing, even if your reason says one thing, you have to believe what I tell you. That's what it's trying to get, this is the message that's been trying to get across here in the story. So what does that mean for us? If you find some place where Jesus is saying something you think maybe is regressive, like on, uh, something he's saying on marriage or lust or sex or loving your enemies like yourself, you know, anything that might not fit the cultural current of our moment, you can't say, well, I accept most of what Jesus says, but I can't follow him there. I can accept what he says about being generous with my finances, but when it comes to my sexuality, I can't follow him there. Or I can uh, follow him when it comes to reading the Bible and stuff like that, but when it comes to serving, no, I'm out. What's happening here is you can't do that. Because here's the question, where did you get that grid? And why is that grid held to a higher authority than Jesus? And his words. Because really what you're doing, if you're doing that, what you're actually saying is, oh, I really respect Jesus, but I can't follow everything you see in the New Testament. I can't follow all of his teaching. And what you're really saying is, I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is at all. You're actually saying he's a fraud. He's a lunatic. He couldn't be the son of God because if he is the son of God, he has the authority over your mind, what you think, what you know, what you do. Link to that, Mark wants us to notice this also. He wants us to notice the authority that is coupled with the power. Sorry, the power that's coupled with his authority. He says this in Mark 1, 23. Just then a man in their, in their synagogue who was possessed by impure spirit, cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That's an interesting question, right? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Just a quick side point here. Here's the thing about the demonic. Here's the thing about the kingdom of darkness. They can't read minds. In this moment, they do not know the plan of salvation that is unfolding before their eyes. They don't understand that Jesus came and is going to die on the cross and that's how he's going to defeat them. They don't know any of that. That's why in this moment they're like, oh, hey, you're going to destroy us now? It's a legitimate question because they don't know. But what does Jesus do? He says, be quiet, said Jesus sternly in verse 25. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. See, Jesus has authority, which in the, in the original language also means power. The power is the direct evidence of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. In the Bible in general, the kingdom of God is the healing, renewing exercise of God's ruling power. Part of the point of God becoming king at last, which was the center of the message of Jesus, was that all rival powers were being defeated. 
Jesus came with power and authority greater than the forces that had corrupted and defaced human lives. For God to become king meant that all forces had to be dethroned and the most obvious sign was that the dark, shadowy forces that seized control of this man were being expelled, as N.T. Wright says. Mark is highlighting this power and what it says about Jesus. But first, what is this whole deal about a man being possessed by an impure spirit, right? What's an impure spirit? There are somewhere about 300 references to the demonic in scripture. A variety of terms are used. You got anywhere from the devil to Satan to demons to spirit to evil spirits to the God of this age to unclean spirits to impure spirits in this case. So what we're reading in this context, just so we're very clear, is Jesus, his disciples, going toe to toe with the demonic in church. And I want you to note this, which we're going to talk about as the series goes along. Everything that Jesus is doing in this story and that he does is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But just in case you're wondering what a demon is, according to biblical terms, this is what a demon is, okay? Demons are fallen angels, sentient beings, divinely created, supernatural beings who are under the leadership of Satan. And they're rebelling against God, okay? They exist. And they are behind so much of the evil in our world, like poverty and human trafficking and the dehumanization of people in many forms, like racism and xenophobia, and I can go on. But what is understood is unclean in the Old Testament means evaded the control of the divine holiness and banishes humans from God's presence. And we need to understand this. One of the enemy's main goals is to estrange human beings from the presence of God. That's what we see happen in the garden. That is what the enemy um, somewhat accomplishes when he gets Adam and Eve to take that fruit. What happens? They're banished from God's presence. They have to be removed from the garden. And we need to understand the root of all this evil that entered that world in that moment. There's a power that is real behind it. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, 12, for a struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have to allow this to evade and dismantle our Western worldview, to challenge it, so that we can rebuild it back in a a balanced biblical way. So what does a balanced biblical worldview look like, okay? As my friend Dr. John Thompson says, the Bible describes the world as physical and spiritual. That's one reality. We're not dualists like Buddhists or Gnostics. We believe, according to scripture, that all creation both spiritual and physical, is good, though it has been marred by sin. Part of the reason we reject dualism, meaning spirit equals good and physical equals evil, is because we believe God became flesh. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. The incarnation was the visible joining of the physical and the spiritual in the single person of Jesus. His body, cross, scars, and all is now glorified and will be visible to us who spend eternity with him. Or think about the end of time when all creation is restored, right? We've talked about this. Dan's talked about this many times. We won't float up into the heavens somewhere. The end of the story is the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth, physical and spiritual, making capital R reality. So me and you, we're complex human beings. We're both spiritual and physical. We're one person, and this is the biblical worldview. First, that you and I are physical and spiritual all at once, and second, the universe is populated with sentient beings who interact with each other and not just laws that rule the world and run this place. The Bible declares that there is a God, the ultimate sentient being who is the author and creator of all and who continually sustains the universe and interacts with us according to his will. And the Bible further shows us that the world is full of angels, demons, human beings who regularly interact with each other within the universe God created. One theologian by Paul Hebert puts it like this, we live in an organic universe, an organic universe. It's alive. 
for the longest time, my worldview didn't line up with, with this. All the things that I've just told you or what I'm reading. For the longest time, I didn't understand and I realized that I had more of a Western worldview. Like I used to, uh, I didn't understand that when I used to deal with a lot of this stuff, like the spiritual demonic, um, I actually had these attacks in my life. Like these strange dark shadows that would show up in my room at different times of the night. And in, in my, my mind, I would just tell myself like, okay, you're just um, making that up. It's all in your head, Ben. It's all in your head. Just forget about it, go to sleep, it doesn't exist. Like, you know, dark shadows is something that you see in Harry Potter, but not in real life, right? And I try to convince myself all the time, but then I moved to Toronto in uh, 2018, as I said. And as I went into this church, right, they had this whole understanding of spiritual warfare and how we deal with it as Christians, and my theology started to get built out. And I went through this process that they had at this church, it's just called restoration prayer, okay? And John Thompson, as I mentioned, and some others, prayed for me. And in this process, what was happening as they prayed for me, as we um, read scripture together and did this whole thing, I realized there was demonic activity in my life that I was being set free from. And when, I'm, when I say free from, it wasn't like they, this demonic presence owned me, because like, sometimes we get that confused. See, when we read the word possession, right, which is a, a translation of this Greek word demonization, we sometimes think ownership, but that's not what it always means. Really, a better way to understand it is actually just demonization, or another way, influence, right? So the demonic, even as Christians, can influence us or attack us, and we need to understand that. So what I walked away from after that time was that there it was a deep understanding that this stuff was real, that as I stayed committed to Jesus, I, I, I need to, to make sure that the importance of living this out day to day, staying true to God's word or being in God's word was important. To combat this activity that sometimes we could come across without even knowing. Sometimes we can open up or as Paul says, uh, uh, allow the devil to have a foothold in our lives through different means that we don't even understand fully. In that passage that I just referenced, Paul talks about anger as being a way that we can accidentally open ourselves up to the demonic or the kingdom of darkness. But all that being said, what happened was I learned that the power of the demonic in my past and my future must be confronted and rooted out by the power of Jesus. This is the power that is being revealed to us in this story. This is what made the crowds amazed in this moment, which wowed them in a way that also caused about a little bit of fear of what they were seeing happening before their eyes. Because you need to understand this, in this culture, exorcisms were a normal thing. People would have done it all the time in this Jewish culture, and they would have done it in different ways. They would have done it, they would have seen people do it through, um, you know, bowls of water or potions or burning inset and incense or amulets or ashes. And all the times that they saw this happen in this culture, what would happen is this person, whoever was doing this exorcism, would pray to a higher power because they needed a higher power to help them deal with the demonic in front of them. But this is what happens. This is what's so different about Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene and he doesn't do any of that. Do you notice that in the text? He doesn't pray. He doesn't do some incantation. What does he do? His presence itself calls attention to the demon. So the demon approaches him, asks him, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God, which was a true statement. All this is showing us the demon is threatened in this moment because he, he knows who's standing in front of him. Jesus says in that moment, all he says is be quiet. Why? Well, we need to understand that demon, uh, what, what's happening here is when he recognized that he was the Holy One of God, scholars say what's happening is that naming the person was a tactic used to control a person in a spiritual battle, which the demons could have been doing in this moment. But Jesus calls for them to be silent because Jesus is saying in this moment he is truly in control of the situation. And notice, Jesus doesn't pray to a higher power, as I said. He just says, come out. Come out of him. Why? Because Mark is trying to tell his readers and us as we read this story, this is a significant theological point that we need to grasp, and it's this. Jesus is the higher power. God incarnate. 
the Son of the Most High God. The encounter is a visual representation of what happens when the kingdom comes near. Evil is challenged by the presence of the kingdom represented by Jesus, the King, and its hope. And this is why today, friends, even though the forces of darkness are real and we might come across them, we don't have to live in denial, but we don't also have to live in fear. Because the presence of Jesus inhabits us through the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. And also it empowers us and calls us to go out into this world and push back darkness as we live on mission for Jesus, spreading the gospel. And this is one of the errors that we can make when it comes to the demonic. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it like this in his book, Screwtape Letters. There are two equal opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, meaning the demons, by both errors, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Simply, we don't have to deny that this exists, but at the same time, we do not have to live in fear. So when we understand this, when we understand what a biblical worldview is when it comes to these things, this is when we can understand what spiritual warfare here is. And this is the key, okay, in understanding spiritual conflict. As I've learned, sometimes we look at these power encounters in the Gospels and these stories, and we think like this is how spiritual warfare always is. But actually the norm of spiritual warfare is actually more insidious than this. And a lot of times we actually don't even notice sometimes that we're in it. We need to understand that spiritual warfare is simultaneously carried out on three fronts, okay? We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit here at Port Kells Church. But the Bible is clear that there's also the opposite, the unholy Trinity, okay? The Word, the flesh, and the devil that's coming after us. When I say the world, I mean, uh, uh, this is the evil triad. The world refers to human systems that function in an ungodly way. The flesh refers to our sin-infected human nature, and the devil is this chief of all being, evil beings, a sentient being who fell, corrupted himself before the beginning of time. Now, most of us, when thinking about spiritual conflict, almost always focus on the devil, despite the fact that Romans 6 is clear about the pervasive influence of the flesh, and John 17 is clear about the threats from the world. But see, we can easily overemphasize the power encounter, but we need to understand this. This is what I'm saying, okay? When you have a fight with your wife on your way to church or whoever, your sister or your friend, the devil didn't make you do it, okay? When you uh, flip off somebody on the highway because they cut you off, the devil didn't make you do it. We can't chalk everything up that we do to the devil. There's other things at play is what I'm saying. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? But spiritual conflict, therefore, is actually an attack on three fronts in two arenas, okay? Three fronts, two arenas. Doctrine and experience is the two arenas. The basis of our thinking is what I mean by doctrine, and the reality of our experience are continually under assault. Spiritual warfare is much as an intellectual spiritual fight as it is a feeling, emotional, experiential fight. Both of these areas are under vulnerability. They must be guarded to ensure victory. So let me give you an example, okay, of the first arena when it comes to our thinking, when it comes to the intellect, especially in our culture today, okay? Uh, I think I've said this example before, but I'm going to give it again. One of the ways it happens is this, when it comes to the ideas of how we live a free life in this world, okay? Simple example is this popular phrase, let me speak my truth. Let me speak my truth. Meaning if that is true for you, great, but what's true for me is true for me, okay? In other words, harmless at first glance, but really what it is, digging deeper into it, what it's saying is that there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. What is truth? Truth is what we can rely on as real, meaning reality. Me standing here 
holding this iPad, the reality is that you see this iPad, it exists, it is real. The air I am breathing is real, it's reality, okay? Jesus is reality, okay? Jesus calls the devil in John 8 the father of lies. Lies are unreality. Lies are unreality. Deception is the enemy's go-to tactic, and this is his first, first tactic, and if it doesn't work, he goes after truth, and sometimes that looks like false ideas masking themselves as true, like this phrase, like this saying, and here's some of the questions we have to wrestle with, okay? What ideas could we be dabbling with that are actually lies, not truth? What deceptions of the enemy could we be playing with that we could be somewhat exercising in some way or taking into account or living our lives according to? Maybe it's ideas about who you are or what the meaning of life is or what you need to pursue to gain happiness and fulfillment in this life or what gives you purpose. We have to reflect on what sin you know, we've been hiding that needs to be exposed and brought out of hiding so the enemy has no hold over our lives. Because this is the thing, as far as the Bible is concerned, demon possession is only an extreme end of the condition we're all in. The Bible continually talks about the fact that we are slaves until Jesus liberates us, until the king liberates us. How so? Because we're all under the control of something, particularly sin in our lives, the flesh. And here's the thing, I, I do this all the time because it, it's easy, even as a pastor, to fall into wrong ways of thinking. And one practice I do a lot of the time is I allow God to bring up false assumptions that I'm living my life according to. So I'll give you an example. This week, okay, in my devotional time, we as a community, we follow a way of life. And one of the spiritual practices that we're doing as a community is simplicity. And Dan wrote up this whole practice for us to do, which I told him challenged me quite deeply and convicted me because I struggle with buying stuff. And as I was sitting there, I asked God, okay, so what is the assumption that I have that causes me to carry out this habit, okay? Because there's assumptions that we all have that causes us to go back to these habits that we have, that we need to uh, uh, surface and to understand in order to dismantle these bad habits. And I just simply did something that I did. I, I pray and I just wait in silence. And I allowed the Holy Spirit to bring to mind what might be the case, okay? So no audible voice, no nothing happened, nothing, nothing like that. But after five or ten minutes, this, this phrase popped into my head. And it was this. It was just that I believe that I don't have what I need. That's the assumption that I'm working off of. The Holy Spirit brought to light that the assumption that carries me into this habit of buying more things is uh, this assumption deep in my subconscious that I believe I do not have what I need. So what did I do in that moment? I prayed like, okay, God, if that is true, speak to that lie. Speak truth to that lie. And I just sat there for a couple minutes. Nothing happened, nothing extraordinary, like a beam of light didn't shot into my room or anything like that. And what happened was just very slowly, Psalm 23, 1 came to mind. And I opened that psalm, and what did it say? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. This is the way that we dismantle the lies of the enemy of, in our life. We speak truth, we speak scripture to those lies. So how often do you monitor the flow of experience in your life? If God is speaking to you, would you be able to hear him? If the devil is affecting you, would you be able to recognize his influence? These are questions that you need to consider. But here's the thing. As you consider those questions this morning, maybe you might not like some of the answers that come to mind or even maybe some of the things that are being brought to mind as I'm speaking right now. This is the best part about Christianity. We don't have to live in denial, but we don't have to live in fear. See, the beauty of the gospel is the same power that set this man free, the power 
of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the same power that led Jesus to lead a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, trampling the power of sin and death in the grave, that when we repent and believe, uh, we can have a relationship with him. Paul says it like this in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You don't have to fear the power of darkness because Jesus has defeated all of them. What this passage is telling us is that Jesus has removed any authority that the kingdom of darkness has on this world forever. And one day he will come back and deal with everything evil once and for all for good. And this is what you need to wrestle with. This is the reality of us sitting in this room this morning, every one of us that follows Jesus, you're called to engage in spiritual warfare, to push back darkness. And the main means of doing that is sharing and spreading the gospel. The Bible is clear that each human being is either owned either by God or by Satan. Each of us is either possessed by Satan or possessed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. We are citizens of one kingdom or the other. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? That there is a God of this age that is blinding people from seeing the true light of the gospel, this good news of the gospel? Because this is the sad part of how the story ends. The people were amazed, but they didn't believe in Jesus. The people didn't recognize who he was, that God was standing in their midst. They walked away from this moment amazed, but they didn't believe They didn't recognize. They were spiritually blind, like most human beings, like this passage in 2 Corinthians says. See, because this is what I think. If we actually believed that, how much more would we pray with fervor, with expectation, knowing that it was God that needed to come in in a moment and remove the the blinds that we have in our eyes, may it be our family or friends or our community, to see this good news that we're trying to tell them about when we share our faith, when we share the good news of Jesus, right? See, when we hear the word possessed, right, as I was talking about, uh, we think ownership a lot of times, and it can mean ownership or influence, but this is what we need to uh, learn, okay? This is what we need, we need to understand about possession. Possession is always positional and sometimes presence, okay? First and foremost, as I said, we're either in one kingdom or the other. It's first positional. Sometimes it's presence, meaning sometimes it's demonic activity in our lives. But we need to understand you're either owned by Christ or still owned by the other side. There are only two kingdoms. There's no in-between place. There's no in-between place, my friends. But the truth that dissipates any fear that we might have, if you're a believer in this room, is that we are bought by the blood of Jesus. We're owned by him. We're purchased outright, and we're no longer a slave to sin or a slave to the enemies, but slave to Christ, our good father, a good master, whose son Jesus calls us a friend. I'm gonna invite the brand up this morning. And my question is, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Some of you, maybe you're struggling with that belief this morning. Maybe you're in a situation of suffering you're going through or a broken relationship you're trying to mend. The pain of an experience that you're going to be, be, be either physical or spiritual or emotional, or mental. Maybe that situation is trying to convince you of a different reality, a different truth this morning. This is what we're going to do together this morning. 
we're going to combat those lies with truth. And the way that we do that when we come together on a Sunday is we sing. Singing helps us focus on the glorious eternal realities that may be clouded by the gloomy temporary realities that we have to deal with. It helps us especially because when we cannot produce words of our own, we can use words of another. This is why we worship together through song. I love how one author says to close, usually in times of distress, our minds hold on to eternal realities as articles of faith, but that does not necessarily influence our feelings. Our hearts remain engulfed by the problems. Songs help truth travel down to the heart. And the use of music, the language of the heart, helps speed the process. The objective truths we get from biblical songs challenge our subjective feelings. Our theology addresses our experience. Moreover, the permanent triumphs over the temporary. And we're able to praise God from our heart. So this morning, would you... Stand with me and join me as we sing together. Come Holy Spirit. I pray that you would come and open our eyes to the good news of the gospel. Open our eyes to the lyrics that we're about to sing. That these eternal truths would triumph over and replace these temporary moments of suffering or pain that we're going through in this moment. Amen.